following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. purposes for your glory. We've uh, gathered as your people to, as your children, to worship for your glory. We served others this past week for your glory. We performed our jobs all week long for your glory. We went to school and studied hard for your glory. We sing for your glory. We proclaim your word for your glory. Father, rid us of the desire to get the glory for ourselves. And focus our heart's attention on you. We brought into this room today lots of stuff. We brought in with us our problems, problems at work, problems at school, problems at home, relationship problems. All kinds of things. Problems rearing children. We brought in here today some physical pain, some emotional pain, some spiritual pain. Just there's an emptiness, Lord. And I came to church today to see what you've got. If that person is here, Father, I pray that for your glory... You might do a work in their lives this day. And we certainly brought sin in here today because we're sinners. God, we pray, even as we think of the sin that we bear in our lives, confess it to you or you'll, you'll forgive So even as we even as we think of our own sinfulness, even as we confess to you the just these next few moments, Lord, we pray as we confess that you would deal with our sin. Father, we pray for our nation, for the nations of the world. Much turmoil war, rumors of war, death, violence, we see every day. We realize there are good things happening even in war-torn nations, Lord. We have missionaries over there. They're serving you faithfully. They're meeting in church today and we Pray, Lord, that your spirit might protect them and, and you might guide them as they lead people into your presence. Even in our own nation, Father, we have war-torn neighborhoods. And your church is building a place of refuge in those neighborhoods. And we pray, Lord, that you might do your work today in the lives of your people. We pray for the leaders of our nation and the, and the nations. We pray that godliness might be their desire, that you might do a work in the hearts and lives of 
those leaders who stray from you, lack character. What a miracle that would be. And we pray, Father, that you would um, encourage the decision-making of those leaders that their decisions might not be politically motivated, but they might be motivated for the betterment of the people. We know that's why you establish governments. We pray for the leaders of our church, uh, those that teach. Pray your blessings on their lives. Those that are taking care of the children even now as we pray. We ask you to... Give us wisdom in all that we do. And for our membership, Lord, those that, particularly those that are sick in the hospital, those that are homebound, we ask for your guidance in their lives, that you would uh, take care of them, that you would use us to minister to them, that your grace has promised is sufficient for their lives. We thank you for your word. Your word we've been able to sing this morning and, uh, and read and now proclaim. We pray that this psalm might come alive and encourage us in our walk with you. Preach through this preacher, Lord, as he's prepared. Fill him with your spirit. May the words that come out of his mouth be your words. Again, for your glory. Amen. I'd invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bible to Psalm 73. This morning we turn our attention to Psalm 73 on our sort of hopscotch journey through Psalms for these summer months that we're involved in. As I mentioned to you last week, I wanted to try and jump around to different psalms of different types so that uh, we get a little different, a different flavor each week for uh, what we find in the psalms. What kind of songs are contained here? This morning, Psalm 73 is altogether different than Psalm 22 that we looked at last week. Instead of reading it uh, in, in full... Uh, here at the beginning. We're just going to kind of work our way through it this morning. So if you have your Bible, you may want to turn. Um, Psalm 73, I've got all the text there. Uh, this should pop up on your screen, on the screen, as we work our way through this morning. But before we get there, I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. The writer of Hebrews says this in verse 15 of chapter 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. I'll tell you something. I hate weeds. Weeds. All kinds of weeds, any kind of weed. I hate them all. I'm a master at growing them. I can't grow anything else that anyone would want, but weeds, got them covered. Come to my front yard right now, look in the flower bed, and you know what you'll find? Yeah, you'll find weeds. Big weeds, small weeds. I've tried over the years to do all sorts of things. I've spent money and I've spent energy planting really pretty things. But somehow, they don't live. They just die. No matter how much I baby them, no no matter how much I talk to them, no matter how much I feed them, no matter how much I do whatever tricks Google says I should do on them, I can't keep them alive. But weeds? Oh, I got weeds. I'm a master at growing weeds. One thing I know about weeds is they grow up fast. Have you ever noticed that? Weeds grow fast. I mean, you can weed your flower bed and you can weed your garden. And you take a couple of weeks off and the next thing you know, you go back out there and guess who's back? The weeds are back. They've taken root and they've begun to sprout. And if you just continue to ignore them, what do they do? They continue to grow, and if you continue to ignore the weeds long enough, they will eventually take over your entire flower bed, your entire garden. They will squeeze out the life of anything else 
that's valuable in that space. They will take over. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, the writer of Hebrews speaks of a root of bitterness. He takes this issue of bitterness and he compares it to a weed, to a root of a weed. And he gives us a warning. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no bitter root springs up and causes trouble. Or no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Just like unwanted weeds spring up in our gardens and our flower beds, the writer of Hebrews wants us to realize that spiritually speaking, there are, there are weeds, spiritual weeds that, that take root inside of our soul and begin to spring up. And just like weeds in our garden, they take root quickly. They can grow awful fast. And if we ignore them and don't give attention to them, they spring up larger and larger until eventually... They squeeze out every good thing that's going on in the inside of our soul. They squeeze out our joy. They wreck our attitudes. They thrust us out into spiritual rebellion. They, they wreak havoc in our lives and they squeeze out God's plan for our lives. Bitterness is one such weed that can take root and grow and squeeze out every good thing in our spiritual lives. They don't have to be weeds. don't have to be fed. They don't even have to be fertilized. You never have to water weeds. They just grow. They just grow. The sun can come out and scorch everything else, but the weeds stay. And spiritually, when the weeds grow up and begin to take over our soul, you know what happens? Trouble happens. Trouble in relationship to ourselves, trouble in relationship to how we deal with other people, and particularly trouble in relationship to how we relate with God. When we turn to Psalm 73 this morning, we're going to take a look at a man who perhaps you're unfamiliar with, a man who wrote a psalm. And this is a psalm of testimony. It's a, a man exposing sort of an unpleasant season of his life to us all. He's going to tell us about a season in his life when a bitter root took up residence in his soul. When a root of bitterness sort of planted itself inside of him and began to grow up. And he's going to tell us that that root just about overtook him. That it just about squeezed out his spiritual life altogether. Had not God intervened in his life, he will tell us, he would have gone under. And this root would have squeezed him out. It almost wrecked his life. And I thank God for this man. His name is Asaph. And it took a lot of courage to write this psalm, right? We don't like to expose the bad stuff that goes on inside of us, right? We don't like to expose our failures for other people to see. In fact, we like to hide those things, right? You came here this morning, and I guarantee you do what we all do when we get in a crowd. You put on your best face, right? I'm looking at you. I'm thinking I'm seeing your best face. Yeah, everything's great. Everything's wonderful. Oh, we don't want anybody to know that there's some kind of a nasty root of sin going on in our lives. But Asaph tells us about his. And I thank God that he tells us about his. Because I think you're going to find that you identify with his experience. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy before we get into the psalm. His name is Asaph. He was a Levite. He is a musician. So a song written by a musician. He's one of three musicians that we find in the Old Testament that were appointed by King David to sort of preside over the choral services of the sanctuary. He was one of three that presided over the choral worship of the, the gathered body of God's people. We find back in First Chronicles and Second Chronicles his name pops up an awful lot. He was chosen to lead the music. Uh, by David when they brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem in that big celebration. He's mentioned in First Chronicles. He's mentioned in Ezra, Nehemiah. And he's mentioned in several of the Psalms. Apparently, Asaph was an excellent musician. He was a gifted singer and a gifted instrumentalist. Do you know what his instrument was? He played the cymbals. He played the cymbals. Now, how often do you find a worship leader playing the cymbals these days? I'd like to meet the worship leader who plays the cymbals. That was Asaph, a singer 
an instrumentalist, one who plays the sing or the cymbals. He he was a songwriter. Psalm 50 was written by Asaph, and here in book three of the Psalms, beginning in 73 right on through to 83, uh, these are all Psalms written by Asaph, this worship leader, cymbal playing singer, and songwriter. In fact, First Chronicles tells us that his family led the worship in the temple before the ark every single day. So Asaph is a worship leader. He's a minister. And Asaph was a man who had a bitter root grow up inside of his soul and almost wreck his spiritual life. You say, wait a minute. Ministers can develop a bitter root in their soul? Wait a minute. You mean ministers can allow bitterness to root down in the soil of their heart and grow up and squeeze out their spiritual vitality in their life? You bet they can. You bet they can. There's not a one of us who's immune, right? None of us. And so Asaph writes a psalm, 73, a testimony psalm about a day, about a season in his life when a root of bitterness took root and almost took him out. He's going to tell us about it. And he's going to tell us how it resolved in his life. And I pray that as we trek through this song, God will help us to identify. And perhaps, just perhaps, someone's come here this morning. Perhaps somebody has come in here, and right now your best face is on for everybody else. But you know deep inside, that root of bitterness is there. It started somewhere. Maybe this morning. Maybe last week. Maybe it's been festering and growing for months. Years. Maybe even this morning there's someone who's right on the edge of their spiritual life being squeezed out altogether by this root of bitterness. I pray that by the ministry of the Spirit of God we would see the danger and see the solution as we work through this psalm. The psalm begins by a wonderful sort of preliminary confession that Asaph gives us in verse 1. The first thing he says in the psalm is this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's a great way to start a song, right? Truly, God is good. I mean, that's a a statement of fact. God is good. If there's anything that's fundamental to the nature and character of God, it is that statement of fact, that God, by nature, is what? He's good. He's not evil. He's good. The God who created all things, the God who rules the universe, the God who has breathed life into every human being that's ever lived, is a God who is good. He's good. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines the goodness of God as as this. He says, God is the final standard of good. And all that God is and does is worthy of approval. That's what it means to say that He's good. Everything that He is and everything that He does is worthy of approval. Now, the definition is not completely perfect because we would want to ask the question worthy of whose approval? Who could approve of good in God? Well, not us, right? So it would have to be worthy of his own approval. The whole point of the definition is simply to say this. Good is defined by who God is and what he does. That's how we know what good is. God defines it. What he is is good, and what he does, all of it, is good. The Scriptures declare this over and over, that God is good. In Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Good. Psalm 106, 1, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is He's good. Over and over and over and over, the psalmists declare the goodness of God. In Luke chapter 18, verse 19, Jesus God in human flesh is walking and speaking and talking to men. And he says to someone who's called him good teacher, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. God is the only one who's truly good. He is good. And everything that he does models goodness. Genesis 1.31, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and you know the story. At the end of that story, in verse 31, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was was very good. Everything that God does is good. Everything that he does is good. Psalm 84, 11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is the one who gives good things. 
He does good things. He gives good things. In fact, the New Testament tells us every good and perfect gift comes from whom? From God. He's the one who gives everything that's good. So God is good. That's true. It's a true fact. It's a statement of fact. He's good. Everything that He is is good. And everything that He does is good. Do you agree with that statement this morning? God is good? Yeah, that was awful, wishy-washy. Do you agree with that statement that God is good? Okay, all right. That's semi-better. God is good. Regardless of what I see or feel or think, at any given moment, there is a truth that is unchanged. God is good. And Asaph knows that. He establishes it at the very beginning. But this is not a psalm about the goodness of God particularly. It's a testimony psalm about a time when doubt about that began to creep into Asaph's life. He was a man who knew that God was good. But the circumstances of his life that began to swirl around him caused him to doubt for a season. Is God really good? It's a testimony psalm, as I told you. And it's a a testimony psalm that sort of has a circular flow. And you'll see this as we work our way through it. It begins in verse 1 with the goodness of God. And then as we work down through verse 17, we're going to see Asaph start at a good place. And he just sort of descends and spirals down in a negative direction to verse 17. And then all of a sudden a turning point happens and we see uh, Asaph begin to pull himself out of a pit and spiral himself back up. And he ends up where he begins. God is good. But it takes a lot for Asaph to get from A to B and back around to A again. You see, a problem starts happening in Asaph's life. There's something that he knows. God is good. God is good. But then he begins to look around him. And he begins to look around at the world around him. And he begins to look at other people. And he begins to focus his attention on the circumstances that are all around him. And he starts looking around at what he sees. And he tries to then reconcile what he sees and what he feels with the truth that he knows. And in Asaph's opinion, things don't add up. Things aren't adding up. I know a fact to be true. God is good. But what I see doesn't seem to match that. And here's where the problem begins. And we see it begin in verse 2 and follow on through to verse 12, where he goes from this sort of personal declaration of truth to a, a sort of personal conundrum, we'll call it. His problem, his bitter root that takes heart and begins to grow. And it begins right out of the chute in verse 2. He goes right from declaring that God is good. And then verse 2 he says, But as for me, but as for me, now things begin to go south right there. Okay? He turns his attention away from Almighty God and turns his attention where? Inward to himself. And we see the first step towards a bitter root in this man's life. He goes from focusing on God to focusing on himself. It's as though he says, I know that God is good, but let's talk about what really matters here. What really matters here is me. What really matters here for the moment is what's going on with me. I know that God's good, but let's talk about me for a minute. I'm looking around at what I see, and what I'm seeing doesn't match up. The facts tell me that God is good, but my experience is bringing that into question. Has anybody ever found themselves in that sort of a situation? Your mind tells you, I know that God is good. But the experience you're dealing with at the moment brings that truth into question. You're looking at what's going on and you're experiencing what you're experiencing and you're feeling what you're feeling and you're looking inwardly at your own life and what's going on and you're saying, you know, I know that God is good, but whatever's going on right now, it sure doesn't seem very good. That's where Asaph is. He looks around and he sees a problem that bothers him. Here's the problem. We'll see it flow from verse 2 to 12. The problem is this. When he looks around, he sees the ungodly, wicked people around him prosper. And he sees the godly, righteous people, including himself, suffering. And he simply cannot reconcile that. God is good, and yet, when I look around and when I look inwardly, what I find is 
the godly people, the people who are trying to be righteous and live in ways that honor God, seem to be suffering. And the wicked, ungodly people who reject God and live for themselves seem to prosper. They seem to be living large. God's people have real problems. And the people who hate God seem to be on top of the world. We see it in verse 3. As for me, he says, well, verse 2, answering my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And get verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I looked around and I saw the wicked people are getting rich. They're getting rich. They're getting prosperous, material wealth, possessions. They've got it all. They've got the nicest cars. They've got the biggest homes. They've got the best jobs. They always get the promotions. They get the recognition at the office. They get the recognition in the culture. They're living large. So wait a minute. Wait a minute. God is good. But all these wicked people are rich, and I'm struggling to get by. How does that make sense, Asaph says to himself. He says, I was envious of the arrogant. I was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. Merriam-Webster defines envy this way. Painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. Did you get that? This is what envy is. It's a painful, resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another person. And that's mixed up with a desire to possess the same advantage. So in other words, I see other people and I'm resentful that they have what I want and don't have. And I now want what they have. That's envy. And that's where Asaph is. He's become resentful of the prosperity of ungodly people. He's saying to himself, if God is good and if God is sovereign, why should people who reject him be the main recipients of his goodness? Because that's what it looks like to Asaph. You see, his problem is not an intellectual problem. We need to make sure we understand that. He's not thinking through the problem of evil on an intellectual level. What Asaph's real problem is, his real problem is that God is not treating him the way he thinks God ought to treat him. That's it, right? He's not just intellectually musing on the problem of evil. He's saying, God, I'm envious because I don't think you're treating me the way I deserve to be treated. If you're good, then why am I suffering and why are they on top of the world? Everybody else seems to be doing better than me. And here I am trying to live a godly life. So this is the beginning of the bitter root. He sees the prosperity of the wicked. In verses 4 and 5, we see it goes on from there. He says, look, hey God, not only... Are they prosperous, but they don't struggle like I do. Listen to what he says. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. By the way, that's a good thing in Asaph's terminology. They are not in trouble as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. God, it's not only when I look around and see that the wicked people around us are wealthy and they have all the material possessions, but it looks to me like they don't suffer and they don't struggle like God's people do. The New Living Translation says this, translates this way, they live painless lives, their bodies are healthy and strong. How many times have I heard upon the diagnosis of some godly man or woman of some sort of cancer, somebody say, why him? Why her? You're such a godly person. And the subtle implication is the same thing that Asaph is thinking. Why is that happening to godly people when the ungodly are healthy and they're strong? And they don't seem to be struggling in the same ways. They live painless lives. Their bodies are healthy, strong. They're free from the troubles that God's people are facing. They don't seem to have so many troubles. Their, their money and their influence can often buy them out of their troubles. But God's people suffer. How is that a reflection of the goodness of God? It doesn't seem like it to Asaph. It doesn't seem like it. Verses 6 and 7, not only do the, do the uh, ungodly not suffer the same way, in verses 6 and 7 he says that they're prideful and they're violent and they're evil. 
He says, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. I mean, he goes on to describe the wickedness that he sees around him. These wicked people are selfish and they're prideful. They're violent. They have anything that they want. And LT again translates it this way. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. It's good, isn't it? Probably not an exact translation, but it gets the point. That's exactly what he's saying, isn't it? There's no clouds in their sky. In spite of their selfish, violent, oppressive behavior, it looks to me, Asaph says, like they're being rewarded. How is that good, God? And it's not just that they're violent and prideful and all these things. It tells us that they're boastful of their wickedness. They're proud of it. Not only are they not remorseful, they're proud to be violent. They're proud to be prideful. They're proud to be wicked. Verses 9 through 11 tells us even more, he sees. They mock God. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. I love how that his tongue struts through the earth. Big mouths that you know, just go around mouthing off. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in, in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So what's all that about? He's saying they walk around and they mock God. They, they, they spout heresy and vile things and blasphemy. They mock God and they exalt themselves. They, they scoff at what is good and they, they exalt evil. They outright reject God. Do you get that last piece? That, what are they saying? How can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? It's an outright rejection of God. What they're saying is, look, if there is such a thing as God, He's got to either be stupid or out to lunch. Because He's not doing a dang thing about how we're living. That's what they're saying. This isn't probably take you much imagination to listen to that description of what Asaph is seeing around him and impose that same sort of grid on the world in which we live. Do you see the same thing in our culture? Do you see the same thing in Hollywood? Do you see the same thing on television? Do you see the same thing in your neighborhood, in your families, in your workplaces? Do you see people who seem to be prosperous even though they outright reject God? Do you see people who hate God, but it seems like they don't struggle like the godly people do you know? That you know? Do you see people who are prideful and violent and evil? Even people who mock God, and it seems like not only are they getting away with it, but they're prospering. Do you ever see that? Do you ever notice that? Is that a real observation in our world too? Just nod your head like this if you think so. All right. You think so. Asaph summarizes verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. That's what he sees. The wicked, always at ease, increase in riches. Now let's pause for a second. Is that true, what Asaph is saying? Are his observations true? Do the wicked always prosper? They do not. Are the wicked always at ease? No, I drive by the cemetery all the time. There are wicked people who die too. But at least in Asaph's perspective, what's happened is he's seen it enough that this bitter root has begun to grow up in his heart and it's clouding his observation, right? To him, it seems like all the evil people are prospering, even though in reality, we know that they're not. It looks like it to Asaph. And he can't understand it. In his mind, this is not the way things should be. In his mind, if God is in control of all things, that is to say, if God is sovereign and God is good, then what should happen is the wicked should suffer and struggle and face the discipline of God. And the righteous should prosper and be happy and healthy and wealthy. Right? That's what Asaph is thinking. If God is sovereign and if he's good, this is the way the world should work. But he's looking around. It's not the way the world works. In fact, it seems to be the opposite to him. In his mind, he's saying, look, what I'm seeing is not what I should expect in a universe run by a sovereign and good God. It's backwards. You know, Asaph is not the first to make this observation. It's been made many times in the history of humanity. 
And it's made continually, even right up to our day. It hasn't been that long ago that I was watching a movie, don't judge me, Batman versus Superman. I like the hero movies. And right in the middle of the movie, which I don't really recommend, is the bad guy Lex Luthor. And in one of these really sort of poignant moments in the movie, he screams out this to Batman, no, excuse me, to Superman. If God is all-powerful, he cannot be good. And if God is good, he cannot be all-powerful. It's the same thing that Asaph is running through his mind. The same thing. And Lex Luthor's reasoning, and everyone else's reasoning who said similar things is this. If God is all-powerful, he could stop it. And if he's good, he would stop it. The fact that he hasn't stopped it indicates that he must either be not able to, i.e. not all-powerful, or he's not very good. And that's where Asaph is in his mind. God, why is it this way? It seems backwards if you're good. So Asaph's first problem that starts this bitter root in his soul is this inward focus. He begins to look at himself and compare himself to other people, compare his experience with the perceived experience of other people. And by the way, the perceived experience of other people that we often have is rarely ever accurate. We rarely ever ever perceive what's really going on in somebody else's life. Because number one, we don't see what's going on in their life. We just see the exterior that they want us to see. But it begins with a selfish comparison, and that's where the root starts. And then it moves to a second step. The second step is he not only focuses on himself, but he focuses on his feelings, on his emotions. If you trek through that first part of the psalm, psalm, you see sort of his emotions move from envy to covetousness to anger to self-pity to resentment. I mean, it just kind of tracks pretty quickly. It spirals. Envy. Envy the prosperity of of the wicked. Now I want what they have. Now I'm angry because I don't have it. Now I'm feeling sorry for myself because God hasn't treated me the way I think he ought to treat me. And then it just spirals right on down to resentment of the other people and of God. That's sort of the emotional flow, the feelings flow for Asaph. He's focused on his feelings. And when he focuses on his feelings in the midst of his doubt, it spirals him to an awful place. I need a volunteer. I need a strong, I need the brightest of the bright. Come on. I need a volunteer. I got a broom. I need a volunteer. Keegan Bath, ladies and gentlemen. Keegan Bath. Come on, Keegan Bath. I won't embarrass you. Come on. I need, I need a strong bright. This is Keegan Bath, ladies and gentlemen. Come on, Keegan. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Come stand right here. Come stand right here. I need you to do something for me, okay? Um, I got a broom here. Okay, um, and on the top, it's, it's really well made. You can see this prop is super high tech. What does it say at the top? Facts. Facts. And what does it say at the bottom? Feelings. Feelings. Okay, this is an easy illustration for the, these folks. Need to get the point, so you got to help me here. Okay, um, here's what I need you to do. Okay, I want you to I want you to hold this like this, and I want you to balance it on your palm. Okay, but you got You can only look here. You got to focus on your feelings. Okay, and I want you to balance it. You can't look anywhere else. Are you okay? You got this? Okay. All right. You guys cheer them on. Okay. They're, they're, they're half asleep. That's my fault. I'm sorry. Are you ready? You can, you, can, you can balance it for a second with the other hand if you need to. Okay. You can. Okay. All right. Look there. Don't look anywhere else. All right. Should, should we give him another try? All right. Let's do one more try for Keegan. All right. Try it again, Keegan. Right here. Look right here. Look right there. Now you're tearing up my prop, Keegan. My broom prop. All right, Keegan, we'll let you try it again. This time I want you to just look here. I want you to focus on the facts, okay? Let's see if you can do it. They're in your corner. They're they're cheering for you, really. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, Keegan Bath. Thank you, Keegan. That's a silly illustration, but it did wake you up a little bit. And you get the point, right? When we focus on our feelings, life gets out of balance. When our feelings dominate our attention and that becomes the sole focus of what we're thinking about and trying to process, 
we can't keep things in order. And that's where Asaph has gone wrong. He started this whole psalm with a fact. God is good. But quickly, he cycles over to his feelings. And when he cycles over to focusing on his feelings, Jeremiah says the heart is deceptive. Right? It's deceptive. It will fool us. And it will get us out of balance. But when we focus on the facts, we can keep things upright. This is what's going on with Asaph. He's allowed his attention to move from the goodness of God inward to a comparison between himself and other people and inward on his feelings. And those things have dominated his perception and have now clouded his perception and has drawn a wrong conclusion. When we get to verse 13, we see his pitiful conclusion that he comes to after cycling through all this. Listen to verse 13 and following. Here's Asaph's conclusion after looking at the world around him and considering how what he sees compares to what he knows about God. He says this, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What's that mean? He's saying, I'm not telling anybody what I'm thinking about right now because it would mess everybody else up. I am the worship leader, he's thinking. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You know what his pitiful conclusion is? His pitiful conclusion is this. Living a life of obedience before God has been a complete waste. That's the conclusion he draws. Living a life of obedience before God has been a complete waste. It has gained me nothing. It has has not gotten me ahead. It has not paid off. Serving God has been a bust. That's his conclusion. And now his bitter root is in full bloom. Serving God's a waste of time, says the worship leader. Now I'm I'm thankful for Asaph. I'm thankful for his wonderful, painful transparency here. But I bet you that many of us in this room can identify a time in our life when the circumstances have pressed into our life and we've thought similar thoughts. God, what good does it do for me to serve you if this is all I'm going to get? I mean, God, and we start listing the things we do. You know, I go to church. I try to do this. I try to read my Bible. I pray. I don't do these things that all the wicked people do, right? We start listing them out. And yet I've got this pain. And yet I've got this trouble. And yet I have this bill that I don't know how to pay. And all these other people who hate you live in a life of ease. What good is it for me to serve you? That's where Asaph is. That's his conclusion. It's been a bust. It's been a bust. God, I've served you, and I I, I keep coming out on the short end. That's where he is. It's an age-old question that he asks. Why why is it that bad things happen to good godly people, and why do the lost, godless pagans of the world seem to prosper? The question is raised all throughout Scripture. It's raised in Psalm 37 and answered in detail there. The book of Job really revolves around this question. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, this is how the prophet Habakkuk begins his brief book. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear, or cry to you violence and you won't save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes forth perverted. God, the world is messed up. The righteous come out on the short end and the wicked are on top. What Asaph, what Habakkuk are asking and what many others have asked is this. What's the payoff for being faithful to God? What's the payoff? If it's not going to make me wealthy and fat and happy, what's the big deal? Why follow God? Why bother? Now, if we dig below the surface, the question really, at its heart, 
exposes a real wretched sort of selfishness, doesn't it? It really does. Because if we step back and look at it, what God has already done for us in our lives is enough, is enough that we owe Him everything. If He never did one more good thing in my life, I owe Him everything based on what He's already done. He breathes life into me. He, every, every day when I wake up in the morning and I breathe breath into my lungs, you know who gave me that breath? It's God. Every day when I get in my car and I drive down the street and I don't run head, headlong into a, a semi-truck and die, you know why? Because God has preserved me in that day. Every day I wake up and look into my wife's eyes and look into my little boy's eyes and, and I see something good. You know why that's good and why that's there? Because God has granted it. How much of that do I deserve? None of it at all. The Bible declares that I'm a wretched sinner, as we all are. And the only thing we deserve from a good God is instant death. And yet He's filled my my life with good things. He's filled your life with good things. As New Testament Christians looking back at this question from a different perspective than Asaph had, we look at it from the other side of the cross. We look at it as people who can look back and see something else God has done in sending His own Son to, to die on a cross, to shed His blood, to pay the price for our sin that we might be eternally redeemed and spend forever with Him. How could people on this side of the cross look back and say, you know, God, you're giving me a raw deal. Is it not enough for us that He sent His own Son? Is it not enough for us that He was despised and rejected? Is it not enough for us that He was beaten and spit upon and nailed to a Roman cross? Is it not enough for us that He's preparing for us an eternal home and His promise that where He is one day we'll be with Him? If, is that not enough? We must demand more. No, it's wretched to ask the question. To look around at the world and say, God, you haven't done enough for me. I deserve more. But that's where Asaph is. And that's where we often find ourselves. When we allow that root of bitterness to grow up inside of our lives. If you've come here this morning and you're angry and you're bitter with your lot in life and you look around and you can understand why God is allowing you to walk the road you're walking you're doubting God's goodness, believing that He owes you something more than what you've got. You're going to find yourself in Asaph's shoes one day, angry with God and dealing with a bitter root that's about to shatter your world. Praise God the song doesn't end there. A, Asaph has a turning point. Verse 17. He says all of this stuff happened until verse 17 until I went into the sanctuary of God. Oh, something happens in Asaph's life. He quits looking at himself. He quits looking at his own navel. He quits looking at his own experience. He quits looking at his own emotions and feelings. And he goes to God. He goes to the sanctuary of God. We're not told what's going on in the sanctuary. We don't know if he goes into a corporate worship setting and he gathers with God's people. Perhaps that's exactly what happened. Perhaps it's true that Asaph goes into the sanctuary where God's people are worshiping and in the midst of the congregational worship, God opens his eyes to the reality and pulls the silly sinful blinders off of his face. Or maybe he just goes into the quietness of the sanctuary of God. Here's some priest reading out the truth of God's Word. Or maybe he just goes in there and recognizes where he is and who that place belongs to. And in a moment of quiet prayer, his God opens his eyes to what's really going on. But Asaph goes to the Lord. He runs to the Lord in the midst of his doubts. He doesn't run away from him. He runs to them, to him. And that becomes a turning point. All of a sudden it dawns on him. I need to take my doubts to God. I need to go to Him and worship. Roy Clements said this, Worship puts God at the center of our vision. It's vitally important because it is only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. And all of a sudden, God opens Asaph's eyes to see things as they really are. Asaph has been blind. 
And his blindness has led to bitterness, which is about to wreck his spiritual life. And God opens his eyes. And gives him a whole new perspective. He gives him a new perspective on the ungodly. Listen to what he says in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He goes into the sanctuary of God, and all of a sudden, God opens his eyes. All these wicked people that seem so secure, that seem like they're living on top of the world, that seem like they've got everything going for them, all of a sudden, God opens Asaph's eyes to remind him, Asaph, you want to know what's going to happen to those folks? They're going to hell because they rejected me. And all of a sudden, Asaph remembers all their money, all their wealth, all their material possessions. The moment they, they breathe their last breath will be worthless. And they're going to go out into an eternity apart from the God of the universe and spend forever enduring His just wrath on their sin. Whatever wealth, whatever power, whatever prestige they've garnered for themselves here, that's the only good things they'll ever experience in their entire existence because they'll spend forever under the wrath of God apart from Him. A new perspective on the ungodly. Their wealth and their, and their pleasure is just an illusion. Their security is an illusion. It's not real. Truly, you set them in slippery places, he says. It's funny how Asaph says at the very beginning, God is good, but I almost slipped and fell. And then he comes around and says, I've seen the ungodly. They're the ones who are slipping and falling. They seem so secure and they think they're secure. But the reality is, you're just holding back your wrath by your hand. And it's building up and building up and building up like a dam. And one day, you're going to move your hand and your wrath is going to rush upon them and they'll never see it coming. And it will utterly destroy them. Destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. They fall into ruin, he says. Spend forever in hell. Forever in hell. That is the destiny of the ungodly. Whatever limited power and pleasure, material stuff that they get here, is but a speck compared to the eternity they're going to spend in horror. It gives him a new perspective on his own doubts. Verse 21 and 22, And my soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant like a, like a beast toward you. <laughs> I love how he says that. God, I was, an, I was a stupid animal when I was talking to you. Have you ever felt like a stupid animal? God, I said the stupidest things. What was I thinking? Aseph's honest was a beast. I was an idiot. What was I thinking? Thinking that somehow you're not good. Thinking that somehow you've robbed me of what you've owed me. I was stupid. It gives him a new perspective on his own life. Verse 23. Nevertheless, you see, he's coming back up. He's coming back up. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Asaph says, oh, I see it, God. I see it. Here I am thinking I've got nothing and I actually have everything. Here I am thinking they've got everything and they actually have nothing. I had it backwards, God. I had it backwards. I've got everything I need. I'm continually with you. I am never, ever alone. Every pain, you're with me. Every trouble, you're with me. Every sickness, you're with me. Every struggle, you're with me. I'm never alone. He says, God, you hold me by my right hand. Do you understand that Asaph realizes, God, it's not that I'm holding on to you. It's what? It's you're holding on to me. Even in the midst of my doubts, even when I'm acting like a stupid animal and questioning your goodness, you're holding me by the right hand. And you will not let go. You're holding me. You're guiding me with your counsel. 
God, you're, you're giving me your truth. You're giving me your wisdom. And all I have to do is go into your sanctuary. All I have to do is look to you. All I have to do is lift my eyes off of my feelings and off of my own selfish desire and look toward you. And you guide me with your truth. You take the blinders off and you help me to see the true reality. Your counsel is always at my disposal. And then to top it all off, when it's all done and I breathe my last breath, what's he say? You will receive me to glory. When this life comes to an end, I have full confidence, God, you're going to bring me home. Now he sees, right? The bitter root is gone. God, I see. I thought they had it all going for them, and I was missing out. I thought they had everything, and the reality is they have nothing except for your wrath and judgment. I thought I had nothing, but the reality is I have everything, and everything means spending forever with you. Whatever little suffering, whatever little pain, whatever little trouble I have to deal with here is but a speck in the bucket compared to what you have in store for me forever. And you've promised it, and you surely are going to receive me. I can count on it. You're going to take me there. And above all those things, He finally declares, it's not just that I have God's promise of eternal life. It's not just that I have His counsel. It's not just that He's with me. He declares at the end, I have God. I have Him as a person. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's come full circle, right? He's come full circle. At the beginning, he's angry with God because he feels God's gypped him. And now he's come all the way around back to the beginning. And he says, you know what, God? At the end of the day, I am celebrating because I have you. And when I have you, I don't need another thing. That's it. I got you. I'm with you. You're with me. What else do I need? My flesh and my heart might fail like they have in this season. But you're the strength of my heart. And you... God himself is my portion forever, he says. And he ends this psalm by saying this. But for me, it is good to be near God. It's good to be near God. That's a simple statement, but it's so true. It's good to be near God. He starts this psalm by saying, truly, God is good. And he finishes the psalm by saying, you know what's really good? to be near to the one who is good. And he's saying to himself, I'm closer than I ever thought I was. So I worship. I worship. He comes full circle. And the root of bitterness is dead. And the worship of God explodes from this man's heart. That's really just a sketch of this psalm. It really is. But I bet you somewhere along the way there were some things that you heard from Asaph that sound like things that have rolled around in your own mind. God, I I know that you're good, but it just doesn't seem to be squaring up with my experience. God, I, I know that you're good, and I don't understand why I've got this sickness, or I don't understand why I'm having to do this thing that I don't want to do. I don't understand why I got passed over and that person got the thing. I don't understand why it is that those people seem to have children after children after children and I can't have any. I don't understand, God, why it is that the person I love is dead and I'm having to bury them. But that other person has lived for 90, 100 years. God, I don't understand. You know what? It's okay to not understand. It's okay. So what do you do when that moment arrives? You have two choices. You can begin to focus on your own self and what you think you lack. You can give full attention to your own emotions and your own feelings. And those things will spiral you to a place where your spiritual life will be shattered. Or you can do what Asaph did. And you can run to the sanctuary of God. And you can take your doubts and your questions and you can lay them at His feet. And you can lift your eyes up to Him and let Him remind you of the truth. And tell yourself over and over and over again, God is what 
is good. Whatever he does, it's good. Because everything that he is, is good. Even if it doesn't look good, it is good. Even if I'm not sure how it could be good, it is good. Because that's a fact. Let's pray together. God, somebody is coming to this place today. I'm sure of it. And that root of bitterness has begun to sprout up in their life. Some experience, some person, something has invaded their life. And it's unpleasant. And it's painful. And the thoughts of their heart, even this morning before they came here, were similar to Asaph's questions and doubts. And looking inward at their own hearts right now, they can see that bitter root taking root and growing up in their soul. I pray, O God, that in these quiet moments you would cause their gaze to look upward. That they would look away from their feelings, that they would look away from their own selves. That they would look up toward you, the God who is good. And I pray that as they do, O Lord, you would you would help them to see that they are continually with you. That you will never let go of their right hand. That your truth is there to sustain them through every circumstance. And that even if nothing else goes right in their life from this day forward, you will receive them into heaven to be with you forever. God, remind us of the things that really matter this morning. Destroy within our hearts bitter roots. We pray for your sake and for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.